Welcome to Women's Health Weekly from Maiden Lane Medical. We bring you experts from all around the country to help you with your health, life, and happiness. Now for your host, Dr. Kenneth Levy. Welcome back this week to our amazing YouTube audience. You guys have been absolutely fantastic in bringing us questions, in offering topics. Um, we are really excited for this week's topic. So I want to introduce our two awesome guests today. Um, I want to introduce Dr. Terry Ann Bennett, who is a specialist in maternal fetal medicine. That's perinatology for those of you who want to get technical. Um, a specialist in maternal fetal medicine at the NYU Langone Medical Center. The brief story is that I've known Terry Ann since she was an intern and a fantastic resident at NYU. And I'm really, really proud to be able to spend some time talking, her, talking to her today and with her and hear her opinions and hear her and have her join us as an expert in a topic that I'm very clearly not an expert in and want to have that opportunity to hear and hear her voice and pick her brain. Um, I also want to introduce to you Dr. Uh, Shoma Dada Thomas, who is a member of our team here at Maiden Lane Medical. Dr. Dada Thomas is a uh, minimally invasive uh, pelvic surgeon um, and joins me in uh, taking care of women with chronic pelvic pain at Maiden Lane Medical. So we have an interesting topic today and I was telling a friend about this topic and he said, well, that's a very timely topic. And I said, well, it's not, though. It's not a timely topic. What we're going to talk about today isn't new. Uh, we're, what we're going to talk about today, which is racial and ethnic inequalities in healthcare, isn't a new conversation. It's not a new topic. Um, it's something that doctors um, and public health experts have known about for as long as it existed. Um, and unfortunately, some patients have known about it as well. And um, but, but one of the issues and one of the challenges that we're going to talk about today is how we operate in healthcare as part of a much broader uh, social and environmental uh, atmosphere of uh, racial and ethnic uh, inequalities and uh, injustices. I want to lay this out there. I want to lay this out for our viewers. And I know both of you want to hear, um, hear this as sort of a launch and kickoff. It's a great way to kind of kick off the topic. Um, there has been a significant amount of attention brought to this issue um, in the area of injustices in our, or inequalities and injustices, but in, inequalities in our justice system. Um, and there's no secret that those existed long before recent events and much longer potentially even than, than we knew about such inequalities existing in our healthcare system. Um, but Dr. Dada Thomas made a very interesting comparison. He said, everybody's heavily, uh, and this, this issue came much more to fore um, because of recent events, but there are a lot of very heavy protests around the country about the death of one person, um, which is um, a, a death of one person in a long line of deaths of other people who shouldn't have died at the hands of our justice system. Um, but she made the comparison very, very astutely, I thought, that I think, that I think, and I agree with you, that that pales in comparison to the number of deaths um, and injuries that are the result of 
very, very similar inequalities in our healthcare system. So let's keep, let's keep rolling here. Um, I, so, so this affects, does this affect women? Uh, because this is a Women's Health Weekly program, does this affect women as much as it affects men? Or, or does there, is there a greater or lesser effect on either side of the gender, gender divide? Well, I'm a women's health doctor, so I can really only speak <laughs> expertly to how it affects women's health. But also being a black woman and coming from a black family, I know for certain that this spans not only to affect women of color, but also men of color as well. Because the bigger issue is, is that there's a systematic and a systemic plague within our healthcare system that's affecting black and brown bodies regardless of gender. All right, so we're gonna get into some very specific questions uh, about some of these um, healthcare inequities and inequities in women's healthcare, and especially as they're related to how they affect our outcomes. Um, but so this is, as part of how there's a baseline inequity for everybody. And that baseline inequity is that doctors know more than patients, right? There's a knowledge gap. So let's say we eliminated the knowledge gap um, and patients knew what doctors knew. Um, we're still gonna be left with the systemic uh, racial and ethnic inequity. I already know the answer that's gonna come from either one of you. Um, do patients have any control over that? And, 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 and I use the word that, like just, you have to tell me what that is. Do patients have any control over that particular situation? Well, I think fortunately right now, one thing we can say is that patients have a lot more access to information. And I'm very impressed with a good deal of my patients across all ages and demographics who come to me having already done a lot of research. And I think one, that's just because we have more access for information. I think that also maybe there are women that realize I have to educate myself on these issues so that when I'm hearing options, I can make an educated guess because perhaps they don't know if the provider is giving them all the options that are ideal for them. Um, so I, I do think it's, um, it's an issue that when I've had this discussion with patients and, and other doctors, and I think there is, um, whether unfortunately or not, there is a lot of responsibilities for patients, especially what we're seeing is perhaps also, especially on women of color to really gain a, an, an education on their own before speaking with a provider and maybe speaking to multiple doctors to find where they're having the appropriate conversation and one that really fits for them. Um, and I say that especially because a lot of the uh, studies that we're seeing are even when you're talking, taking the issues of access and socioeconomic groups off the table um, and you're you're seeing equal levels of education across the board for patients, even in groups of uh, educated women, we're still seeing disparities of outcomes. Um, so we really have to look beyond just access issues and uh, chronic health care as, as being the main issues that are causing race disparities. Um, even when we're removing those, we're still seeing them. So. I, in a very roundabout way, I'm seeing, you know, I'm, what I'm saying is that the patient education right now is, is more important than ever, even before approaching a doctor and hopefully access for information is, is helpful in that way. And, and a good point for, for doctors as well to think about their conversations with 
their patients and how they're counseling people. And um, if if that's always an equal discussion, if they're always presenting all the options available. So when we do research on health outcomes and we control for all variables other than race and ethnicity, we still see health disparities. And that's my understanding. So I can, I can speak to that for sure. I mean, we all know as physicians, especially if patients do their own research before they come in and they have some understanding of their medical condition, it definitely goes a long way. But you know, if you've sat through any health disparities lecture before, a lot of times we're saying it's important about the education level of the patient and it's important about the socioeconomic status of the patient. We put the onus back on the patient, but we're forgetting that as doctors, first of all, doctor means teacher. So a big part of our role is to teach our patients about their medical condition, to help them to come to an understanding of what needs to be done for their improvement. But most importantly, just like you mentioned, we know that when we control for those confounding variables, education and finances being paramount, that we still see poor health outcomes, especially for black persons. And that's not that's just to prove that it's not race that's the risk factor. It's racism in many regards. Yeah, for sure, because the because and then once some you know we mentioned this kind of earlier in our in our sort of pre-talk conversation is the role of biology and genetics that that doesn't account for it either because we also understand how to treat biological and genetic factors. So if that were the issue, then it would be a like a, a almost like a poor practice of medicine issue. That's not the issue either. So then you're then you're only left with the conclusion that there's a racism, a built-in racism um, associated with the care that we're giving um, black and brown black and brown patients, black and brown women in particular. I want to put this one. I want to put this part out there um, just to get an answer and to see if either of you guys know the answer. Um, and and, be, and just and before we get into some of the nitty gritty on 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 the other on the other topics. What can someone do? Uh, what can a patient do practically um, if either in the moment or in an episode of care um, they feel they are being treated inequitably um, and that inequitable treatment, regard, actually we forget about their race, that inequitable treatment that is, is, that treatment is different than the treatment that somebody else is getting. Um, how, how can somebody, was there uh, an authority to go to? Is there a reporting mechanism? Is there... Um, other than, you know, speak up, what, what are the things that people can do? Yeah, I think patients don't realize how much power they have. I think you're right. And how much really take into account the patient experience and how that's even an important factor when you're ranking hospital systems, even nationally. It's a huge percentage of how hospitals are ranked in our nation. So I think if patients don't realize how much power they have and that there is a reporting system to report physicians that they don't feel are giving them the best care or has discriminated against or showed bias to them explicitly during their process of trying to get health care. Um, in addition to that, there's a lot of patient advocacy groups and patient advocates throughout at least major academic centers where patients can not only sort of fight this battle on their own, but there's someone within the hospital system to help to get your complaint out and to help you to you know, find some resolution when you feel that you've been wrong with the healthcare system. I think that's really important for everybody to understand that when we're even beginning to address a conversation about um, racial and ethnic inequalities in the way we take care of women um, in the United States, we're standing on a mountain of data um, that is against, that doesn't necessarily apply to the treatment we give um, to this population. All right, so I'm going to go, I want to go into Dr. Bennett's wheelhouse. 
I really want to. I want to pick your. I want to pick your brain on this, and I know. And I, I know you're you're expert in this. So I want if you could for Shoma and I, because Shoma and I don't deliver babies. Neither of us are involved. <laughs> neither of us are involved, and there might be a good thing. We leave it to the experts. Neither of us are involved in um, obstetrics at all, um, and but we gel, we do have a general understanding of some differences in. Uh, maternal morbidity and mortality in certain areas. Can you give me a couple of of those areas that are particularly worrisome in, in differences in racial and ethnic differences in maternal uh, maternal morbidity and mortality? Absolutely, and I do want to speak to the first comment that you had about research. We know for sure, as scientists, clinicians, and researchers, that black and brown bodies are usually not represented in a lot of major studies to the degree that is representative of the population which then makes us question the generalizability to these populations. But the other thing to that, and sort of my new catchphrase is that black is a big box. Like there's so much diversity within the color or the race of black, just as there's so much diversity in what is considered a Latina, just as there's so much diversity even in what's considered wom woman, whether you're considering hetero or trans woman. So it's very important that we're paying attention to the fact that these categories that we create are also huge boxes that have diversity even within them. But when we're talking about the lack of diversity in research, I think it's very important for us to recognize why that exists. And there's two things that sort of play a big role on that. And I think it lends right into your second question as to why and what are the outcomes that are poor for black women. For one, we have to say their names. A lot of this is historical. Some black and brown people are really not they're, they're not trusting the medical system. They don't trust their doctors. They don't trust hospitals. And that stems from decades, if not centuries, of just being mistreated. I mean, we have to call their names Lucy, Anarka, Betsy. These are women who are operated on without their consent, without pain medication, even when anesthesia was wildly used. I mean, we have to call it out. This is the Tuskegee Project, where we know that there was men who were followed to, just to see like what would be the natural right. progression of sickness right. and how that creates extreme mistrust in people even accessing medical care. But even bigger than that, it really, when blacks are really starting to make a stride after slavery and Jim Crow, it really you know turned things backwards for us and really reverted a lot of our progress. And it's Henrietta Lacks and how her cells were used without her permission. And even to this day, her family will get none of the billions of dollars that people have made off of her stolen body parts. Dr. Bennett, I forgot about that story, um, but it's a, it's a very prominent um, injustice in, uh, yeah, they, they took her cells without permission and used it in, in cell lines to develop incredibly lucrative uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, it's an it's an, if, if anyone out there is, is interested in that story, the Henry, Henrietta Lacks story, um, check it out because it's a it's an it's an incredible tale of of uh, of, of just of injustice unethical conduct by by many um, I'll, I'll give you an and while you, before you go into the conversation about maternal issues um, I'll share an anecdote but I wanted to take a quick um, stop and thank everybody for joining us here on women's health weekly um, experts from uh, New York City and around the country. Uh, we are Made in Lane Medical. Um, please join us on our podcast. Uh, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'll share an anecdote with you, Dr. Bennett. When I was a resident, so a, a lot of black women don't trust their doctors. Shoma and I have seen this 
over and over again. We have a large population of women we take care of with fibroids, um, and a lot of them are Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and uh, so we, we see this population, and we, we often spend a tremendous amount of extra time with them, um, hopefully getting them to trust what we're telling them is accurate. Um, but uh, the anecdote I'll share with you goes all the way back to 1996 or 7. Um, and I, well, I, so I was a resident um, at... Hol at um, Holy Cross, I was a resident at George Washington University, um, and I was doing a rotation um, at a hospital called Holy Cross Hospital in Maryland, um, and uh, my chief resident uh, was a woman, a doctor named Leslie Nurse, interesting doctor, nurse. Um, she was a black woman, um, probably one of the like kindest, most like most friendly, like knowledgeable, like she was the administrative chief resident. And if any of you have done an OBGYN residency, the, the person who becomes the administrative chief resident is typically thought of as the best. Like out of the group of nine, she was clearly the, the, the best of them. Um, so I was on this rotation with Dr. Nurse and her and I went into a room um, to see a patient and the patient of course in, in instinctive and even though she was clearly Dr. Nurse was clearly leading the conversation. I was standing there with my arms folded um, and She called her nurse. I think maybe because she it said nurse on her <laughs> badge, but um But what when when Leslie explained to her that she was the chief doctor um, on the team She said I, the patient said to her and I, I I'll, I'll never forget this I don't want a black doctor taking care of me. Um, so it turns out that sometimes, and hopefully this is a rare event, but sometimes patients don't trust, uh, black women may not even trust black doctors. How are we going to get them to trust white doctors um, if, they're, if, they're, and they're, if they're not trusting the healthcare system as a whole? So there's, there's precedent for everything we're discussing. This is all very real. Uh, if you don't trust your doctors, then how are you going to get good healthcare because our patients are our healthcare partners. They're partners in getting better um, and preventing illness. All right, so I, I digress slightly from what I really wanted to discuss and get Dr. Bennett's expertise on were um, issues associated with morbidity and mortality in uh, maternal and maternal healthcare. But you know what that makes me think of? It, it has to be our responsibility to gain their trust. That's right. We can't just say, oh, she's not taking her medications because she's non-compliant. She's non-compliant. It's sort of like a write-off. You're like, I told her she's not doing it. She's just not compliant. I think we have to take the next step. The onus has to be on us. It is our responsibility to gain her trust. It is our responsibility to explain it to her in terms that, that resonates with her, that's specific to her culture, that's going to make her understand why it's important to take her medications. It's our responsibility to get her over the hump of the mistrust. That's on us. Is, is so, the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just glad that you both mentioned and recognized that you're taking care of a lot of minority women and realizing that, hey, there's a mistrust here. But the question is, what are you going to do about it? And I, I think this podcast is a part of figuring out what are you going to do about it? Because it is, it's our responsibility. Yeah, and, and, and you bring up the issue about, and I don't, again, something we we don't want to necessarily focus on, but it's a very clear part of this because we really want to talk about some of the systemic issues today. Um, but you bring up the issue of cultural competency, and that doesn't just go for black and brown women. I mean, the this goes for you know Asian women and American Indian women and areas where the predominantly white medical culture doesn't necessarily understand where people are coming from in other cultures and very specifically why they wouldn't take their medications. 
well, I told her, why wouldn't she take her medication? Well, because you needed to put it in a different context and uh, maybe people in that culture don't take this kind of medication for this kind of condition and there's a, there's a workaround. So I'm sorry, show me you were saying something. Sorry to cut you off. I, I, and I think for the context of this discussion, um, to your point about patient education, I think we have to step back and look at our own education and re-education as doctors. I think a term right now that we're hearing a lot is implicit bias. And at this point, the numbers are really screaming out to us um, about racial disparities in healthcare. And if you were to individually ask physicians, do they have these, are, are they part of this problem? Are you um, biased in your treatment? I don't think anybody would really be able to recognize how they're doing that outright. So I think now is really the time to go beyond the uh, macroaggressions and, and really look at, okay, I have to be part of this. If our system is suffering in such a big way, I have to be uh, active and look for implicit biases. And these are, these are things that, you know, are part of maybe daily conversations and recommendations that obviously we're not as cognizant of and this is a good gut check that it's time to do that and it's a very con hard conversation to have with each other as colleagues and i think an even more difficult discussion to have to ourselves um but i have been seeing thankfully a lot more um uh, discussions and even within hospital training programs and um, I saw an article on the out of out of Harvard about training doctors with implicit bias and how to recognize that and um, I think a big part of that came about um, sorry to again stall your discussion Terry but uh, because <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the uh, complaints and you're definitely going to get to this in maternal mortality and even just treating women in general is is they're saying the right things. A lot of these women are telling you, hey, I have heavy, I'm, I'm heavily bleeding after my delivery, or you know what, I, I have this headache, my blood pressure is this. They're saying the right things, but how we're listening to it and receiving the news and processing and then formulating a treatment uh, seems to be a major issue. Um, and so I'm going to stop stalling you, Terry, because I know you're talking about But I wanted to bring up the implicit bias issue, which is important for us to look at. We all need to recognize and accept that we have bias and check yourself. And then you gotta take it to the next level and you have to check your partners, you have to check your residents, you have to check the staff. Like we have to do a 360 check system within our medical system in order to ensure that we're providing the best care and realizing and recognizing that we have bias. I think racism and bias has just been like such a dirty term and no one wants to be no one wants to accept that they may have benefited or behaved in a racist way or have been biased. I'm a woman of color and I will explicitly state that I have biases. We all have them. And I think until we recognize that and then take the steps we need to take in order to combat those things, then we're just gonna end up in the same place that we've been. Um, even as a woman of color, I recognize that there are still a lot of cultural competence that I need to learn. Yes, I'm black. I'm also Caribbean, I was born in Jamaica. So I had that experience, but that's my experience and it is limiting. So when I'm taking care of, let's say my Asian woman, and I recognize that there are things about my culture that's different than her culture. There's things about how I would explain something that I think is clear and makes sense, but that may not be clear and makes sense for her. So how I check myself is I have a medical assistant who is of Asian background and she helps me. Sometimes I bring her into the conversation and then I check myself with her. I say, hey, how could I have explained that better? 
hey, do you think there's another term that I can have to accept what it is? Because that's the only way we're going to learn and be better for our patients. Yeah, I think everybody has a sense of that uh, with regard to leadership um, in healthcare. And I think fortunately, um, there are uh, well-thinking and well-meaning and uh, what I like to use the, the, the 2020 term woke um, individuals who are, um, do I need to go to Brooklyn to say woke or uh, am I allowed to say that in Manhattan? I have to go to like, uh, do I have to go to, Will do I have to, go to uh, Williamsburg or Dumbo to say, to say woke? But anyway, there are people in, in prominent leadership positions who understand um, and are working as best they can to, to make those changes. So, for example, the folks at Harvard, but I know that at NYU and, and Cornell and, and the major institutions around New York City, uh, that this type of leadership um, with regard to working to change how we um, see people who are not us um, is, is, in, is in action. All right, can I can I can I steer back? Maybe we talk about this time. Well, we, oh, you know, we want. There's so much to unpack in all of these topics that we could literally have spent the entire conversation talking about cultural competency, or we could have spent the entire conversation talking about, um, you know, sort of the systemic injustices, um, and even just we could have spent the whole conversation just defining those injustices um, and those inequalities and how those exist. And uh, you know, we started off the conversation talking about. Um, how healthcare, um, and so, uh, I'm stealing from Dr. Dada, who brought, who kind of made this suggestion in the first place. Um, but how healthcare probably kills far more people um, in an in an in an unjust, inequitable way um, than the justice systems built in racial and ethnic inequalities will ever do. Um, and that's because of um, data we have associated with you know morbidity, mortality across. Uh, many different populations and many different disease conditions, but I'll use that as a segue to bring us back to Dr. Bennett um, and specifically to discuss uh, maternal um, maternal issues in either you know preconception issues or um, you know in, in either um, peripartum issues or um, just gestational issues associated with in inequalities and how and how those play out and how those hurt women in specifically. Sure. So we know for certain, and there's data to support this, that black women are more likely to have a fetal demise, preterm birth as are Hispanic women, fetal growth restriction where the baby is very small for the age, mortality for certain, hypertensive diseases like having chronic hypertension, like high blood pressure or preeclampsia, as are our Hispanic women, obesity as are Hispanic women, late entry into prenatal care as our Hispanic women, and more likely to undergo a cesarean delivery. And those are just general obstetrical outcomes. There's also a huge list of looking at sort of severe maternal morbidity, morbidity indicators. And we know for sure, I mean, I can go on with this list forever, that black women are more likely to have a myocardial infarction, a heart attack, more likely to go into respiratory distress, more likely to need a blood transfusion, more likely to go into cardiac arrest, have a heart attack more likely to bleed, more likely to need blood, more likely to need a hysterectomy where you lose your womb and are unable to have future children due to complications of pregnancy, pulmonary embolism, blood clots in the lungs, DVTs, deep vein thrombosis, which can also travel to your lungs, your heart or your brain and kill you. So these are just really significant things that we know are plaguing black and brown bodies more. And on a national level, we, the CDC recognizes that 
black women are three to four times more likely to die than their white counterparts. And when we look at the New York City numbers, black women are 12 times more likely to die than their white counterparts in data in the past. And though we think that number is improving and we're waiting for the most recent data to come out, we know that the gap is wide. And so we have to look at what are interventions, what are things that we can do to sort of, you know, eliminate these health disparities is really our goal. Hold it. You just said, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna put a exclamation point on this. You just told me that is this black women or is this black and brown women are twelve X in New York City? Black women. This so is black from so, year ago. So black women are twelve times so so there's a baseline level of this people women do die in during childbirth. Uh, obviously that's something as OBGYNs we would love to never see happen. Um, but across the planet, there is some baseline level of maternal mortality. Um, so you're, you've said, uh, this is, this is, this, I didn't, I had no idea the number was that high. I knew there was a difference, um, very clearly, but I had no idea the number that high. Terry's giving me that face like, Levy, dude, yeah, come on, man. It's that hot. Um, and, uh, so <laughs> it's 12 times the rate. It's been improving most recently as New York State itself has improved some legislation. Cuomo has passed some legislation. De Blasio has passed some legislation and they're putting money into the system. One really great program that I think will have a big impact is there's a doula program through Brooklyn where the government will pay for a doula for women of color who need that extra support. Tell us what a doula does. Tell us what a doula does for someone in this regard because it's important. So you know, I think it's funny because out in the world, I think there's like a, a thing where they think like doctors, we like to do doctor things and we're all about like the hospital and intervention. But even as a high risk doctor, I should fall in that category. But I think it's very much important that we complement one another. And so a doula in sort of layman terms is a support system for a woman throughout her prenatal care, actually, and during the process of giving birth. And they can be someone to help to remind you what you wanted your birthing experience to be like, someone who can advocate for you, at, especially at times when probably you're in pain and unable to advocate for yourself. But they are really just like a friend, a support person who's gonna have your back and, and help you to be okay and to have an uncomplicated pregnancy and delivery. And I'm a big advocate for a support person, whether that be a family member or a doula or both, because especially for black and brown bodies, we need as much support as we can get to be quite frank. And whatever is going to allow you to feel comfortable and supported, that's what needs to happen. Because even perception, even perception of discrimination has been shown to lead to poor outcomes. Yeah, it's um, sort of like when you speak of, um, you know, it's how do people feel about the care environment? And a lot of this goes to, you know, we talk about behavior in the hospital, we talk about what environments existing in the hospital. We know that, for example, in an operating room, Poor behavior in an operating room leads to worse outcomes. Well, the surgery is not different. Well, it's no, it's how the staff is interacting and working as a team that, you know, if there's anxiety in the environment. So, yeah, even the perception of mis of, of mistreatment that's a, that's racially and ethnically motivated um, is uh, has the potential. It makes total sense. So I want to go back. I want to stick. I think for the rest of the time, we're going to stick with maternal morbidity and mortality because there's so much done back there. Um, does the New York City, because New York State's a, a, a very liberal state. Um, there is um, a government that is uh, that is basically. I, I'm sorry, I, you can't not go to politics here. Um, yeah, you just, we just have to. There's a government that's basically um, call them progressive or call them 
uh, you know, the Democrats, the sort of left-leaning Democrats um, between Cuomo and de Blasio, and when they work together, the state really does great. Um, but uh, so they've passed legislation. How do other states fare um, against New York State? Um, it, it just if you could speak in general, in general terms, about uh, legislative activity um, for um, helping um, resolve some healthcare disparities, but also with regard to maternal mortality. So this information actually is very public. So anyone can look this up. The CDC usually has, and March of Dimes, they're very good at this, and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, they have these maps of the United States where you can click on your state and you can see what are they doing in order to prevent people from dying during childbirth. And you can literally, the states are ranked. So California is number one. And to be quite frank, a lot of us look towards the California Collaborative in reference to their safety bundles, which are these packages that they have created. And this is recommended from a national level from all of our national societies, where we're now seeing that the standard of care just isn't met all the time. And we know that moms in certain hospitals have poorer outcomes than in other hospitals. And so, you know, all hospitals are not created equal as all doctors are not created equal, unfortunately. But how do we bridge that gap? And that's education of our doctors and making sure that we're meeting the standard of care. So one of the reasons why our number is improving from that 12 times um, for black women more likely to die than their white counterparts in New York City is because we have done some important interventions. And some of that is our safety bundles, which is basically where the national societies that sort of govern how we function in obstetrics and gynecology put together what should happen if let's say you had a high blood pressure, a very severe, very high blood pressure, what should happen? And they will literally list out an algorithm you should get this medication. Your blood pressure should be checked in this amount of minutes. Then you should be getting this medication if it's still high. So they basically try to create a map of how to, t to standardize care so that we ensure that every woman, regardless of what hospital they're in, regardless of who their doctor is, is getting the same care, what we know to be best practices. It's sad that, that one yeah. huge. It's sad that people have to die in order to create these types of improvements. Uh, one, one unfortunate example of that, but something that turned out to be very positive in the long run was um, uh, the precedent event to the 1986 um, Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act. And if you're familiar with that piece of legislation, it's a piece of federal legislation that guarantees um, access to emergency department care um, and um, make sure that um, proper evaluations are completed are completed in the emergency room before someone is um, discharged and the reason it was that the reason that legislation first came about was a black woman showed up to an emergency room uh, basically in active labor um, and because of the racism the the overt and horrible racism in the emergency room they didn't take her they didn't want to treat her. They sent her away to the black emergency room. And this is this is another part of the country that in New York and then New York, uh, they sent her away to the black emergency room, which was two full hours away. And I can't remember the rest of the story, but I, she, I one of them died. It was either the mother or and or the, maybe both of them died. Um, but uh, it's a terrible, terrible story. Um, but it's hard when I think about when I think about the mortality rates and then ensuing legislation. I think, God, why do people have to die in order to wake people up? What can't we just say? People are going to die if we don't do this. Let's do it. You know, it's just. Uh... I agree with you. I, I mean, it's a sad reality, but it is 
a part of our reality that something bad has to happen in our society for us to take action. Yeah, in all in all in all aspects of our society. In all aspects, yeah. I mean, most even more recently than that case in 2017 is sort of where I think maternal mortality got a big push on a sort of national level, and that was because Kara Johnson died. And who's Kara Johnson? She was a very accomplished businesswoman. She's someone who we should think is of the higher socioeconomic status that shouldn't succumb to what we think is a poor or uneducated issue. But she spoke five languages. She raced cars. She was the daughter-in-law of a judge, a very popular judge, actually, Judge Glenda Hatchett. And she still died in childbirth. And she had her partner with her who was advocating for her as much as he could. But she basically died from a hemorrhage. She bled out after having a C-section. Um, after she delivered her son Langston. But her husband has really been such a strong advocate for maternal mortality, and they ended up passing the Preventing Maternal Deaths Act in 2017, which is coming through our Congress and our Senate. And I think that also then trickled down to a, a more state level and even in a city level, because then, like I said, Cuomo passed an act, and de Blasio made an act that's given $12.8 billion. It's a $12.8 million initiative that he launched to sort of create a comprehensive plan to reduce maternal deaths and life-threatening conditions in childbirth for women of color. I think also, you know, you're talking about why, why do people have to die to change practices? I think that just emphasizes how important it is in our field where, where racial biases in our field, just like with the justice system and um, policing, you know, from what we're seeing, we have to remember that the implications for our field are costing lives. They're not costing dollars. They're not costing, you know, loss of sales or products. And while those things are important, when it happens in our field, we're losing women, we're losing men's lives. And so that's why really this is um, an elevated topic because the stakes are much higher. There are some regions in the United States where women don't have access to a high-risk doctor like myself. And I think that's why I'm such a big proponent and a, you know, of telemedicine and how I think that would really revolutionize the way we're able to deliver care. Because there should be no reason why, just because someone's in that particular city, that they cannot speak to a high-risk doctor and their doctor be guided in how is the best way to save that woman's life. And so I think telemedicine is a, it's a big way for the future that will help us to create better access and better outcomes for women. I'd love to talk about that access topic because um, it's, you would think, you know, you mentioned having access to people like yourself here in New York City who are at uh, really great institutions and there are great hospitals, um, but yet I see every day um, women of color, uh, you know, black and Hispanic women who don't have access. Um, I, I get the, the emails from our website, uh, for women, from women who, um, you know, of course we advertise our services, um, and I get emails from, uh, women through our website about, um, needing and wanting treatment for fibroids, uh, with heavy bleeding, um, at, or endometriosis with severe pain. Um, and those women, um, don't have necessarily, uh, any insurance at all. Um, and they, of course, can't pay us out of pocket uh, often, and we um, do sometimes venture to offer as much uh, care as possible to them. Um, but there's always in those patients the need for surgery, and then they can't afford to get surgery. Uh, so, the, so the access issue doesn't just exist 
in other parts of the country. I would say that New York City, in spite of the best efforts of the New York City's public health system, um, still has very, very significant access issues. Yeah, there's definitely more work to be done, even on that level. Shoma, do you see the same thing in patients that um, would otherwise like to access a specialist or expert in a certain area, and they they just can't because those experts don't? You know, we've we've done our best, and I think a lot of people in our field have done our best to to accept as much of uh, the insurance as possible. You know, we take Medicaid, we take a lot of the Medicaid managed care plans, um, but it still seems that um, patients go without. Um, the necessary care because they don't have access to affordable health insurance or to um, physicians within those affordable health insurance plans. Absolutely. Unfortunately, I think for the majority of physicians, we see this somewhat regularly, is that you know women are coming forward and really asking for help. And the problem is, even as a physician, I really don't know what the the best answer is to that when you when you don't have the insurance to you know, access these providers. Um, and obviously that's a, a very complicated issue that there's a lot of debate about as well um, with insurance companies and how they affect patients as well as providers. But unfortunately, we see that all the time. Dr. Bennett, do you work, uh, so do you work in that dual role at, at NYU often, that often attendings at NYU have is seeing patients in the private practice setting at NYU and also seeing patients in the public health setting at Bellevue Hospital? So I do not see patients at Bellevue Hospital, but what's really great about our division is that we span across different hospitals. So we cover a private hospital, we cover a public hospital, and I, I function mostly out of our Brooklyn hospital because that hospital is really centered in a very diverse community where a lot of our patients actually have Medicaid or no insurance and then get Medicaid because they got pregnant. And so. One thing that I'm very proud of, in addition to our implicit bias training and really pushing that forward, is that once you get into our healthcare system, we figure it out. There's no woman that's going to walk through my door and then need a specialist and I'm unable to get her to that specialist. And so I think that's a huge step in sort of making sure that we take care of our moms and making sure that they have access to doctors who they otherwise would not see because of insurance issues. How do we fix this? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had the words had to come out of my mouth. Um, you know, and and again, I, I'm, I yeah, right, exactly. I know. I, I you know, like how do we fix the world's economy and like poverty at the same time? We wish we could, right? Um, no, how do we? So the question is is geared towards um, how do we as physicians? work within the system and i think you point just pointed some of that out but how do we as physicians work within our system to offer more global opportunities uh for systemic change in other words how can we be physician activists how can our patients be active um how can our patients work with us to support some level of i mean this all comes down to activism right uh because i don't i would I, I, I don't, I'm personally not friends with any, and I hope I don't know any. I don't know any physician who would think differently than what you just expressed with regard to, yeah, a mom comes to me, they're going to get care, I'm gonna get them in, I'm gonna get them taken care of, I'm gonna make sure they get to the right people. Um, so I think all of the physicians I know, or at least I hope, um, would have that, would share that philosophy. Um, but then there's another, but the, 
so yeah, there's there's some problems with physicians, but then there's also the system problem. There's the systemic issue. Um, what potentially can we get involved in, and what can our patients get involved in to to help this along? Are we talking about political activism? Are we talking about what are we? I mean, the the, the system's so big, and and we feel small, but we don't have to be small. I think there's a few layers to that, and I, I wanted I wanted to make sure at some point in this discussion, um, uh, can that. I, I thank you. So this was my little, my little mini active activism when I was thinking, you know, what could we do? And I was thinking about our podcast and I literally took a deep breath and sent you an email. What do you think of, if we do this? And um, I knew it was going to be interesting and complicated. And, and I think you accepting the opportunity to do this was um, very encouraging for me. And I, I think it's ended up being a really productive conversation. So I think on an individual level, we just have to say, you know, I think just speaking up um, and eventually what happens is hopefully that means more organization as a group and you know doctors and patients um, both are very powerful groups and I think we just really um, need to look for those opportunities to organize and speak out to whether it's to um, to our politicians to the insurance systems we really need a uh, a more unified voice and and we do have those those national organizations in place and I think really now is the time to take advantage of those and if we're if we're speaking as a large very powerful group I think that's that's when we're going to see some change I want to do part two of this I normally don't want to do a part two but this needs a part two um, because we, we do a ton of we do a ton of great topics um, and we could potentially repeat those topics months later but I, we in short term and I'm gonna I'm going to ping you again, Dr. Bennett, um, and we might even need to bring somebody else in as well, like, a, like an administrator or a politician, um, somebody or a public health expert uh, who, can, who can help us kind of work through some of these issues. Um, but I, I, I don't think we've unwrapped this enough. I, I, I'm, I'm feeling hungry. Like I feel unsatisfied. And if, you're, if, you've, if you've, you've been involved in this conversation, uh, even for the last 10 minutes, I hope you feel unsatisfied as well. Um, but but we're kind of getting out of time, and we can't we can't do like a four hour podcast, and nobody will listen to it. Uh, people don't want to listen to my I can't get my kids to listen to me for fifteen seconds, and generally YouTubers don't want to listen to us for more than five minutes. Um, podcast listeners are a little more attentive, um, but um, I, I do want to say um, let if either of you have anything else to say, please uh, let's um, let's do some final words now. I'll have Dr. Bennett go first. So I think it's really good to sort of focus on what are the next steps. And I think there's a difference between philosophy and actual like action items. So on an individual level, I think we can one, check your bias at the door, two, go the extra step for your patients by learning cultural competence, three, going the extra step for your patient by also advocating for them when they're not in the room. So if that patient needs a referral to a specialist, believe it or not, some doctors will say you need to meet with X specialist but they don't like get them the appointment. So I think that's like a next step in using, I mean, it's hard for us to do that as physicians, we're taxed with so much, but our ancillary staff can help us just actually plug patients into these specialists and referral centers that they're being sent to. Um, I think our voice is also very strong. People cannot see you right now, Dr. Levy, but I'll just put it out there. Dr. Levy, for those of you who have never seen his face, is a white male presenting person. And I think for it's important that people like you are speaking up and using your voice to amplify the voices of minorities, especially minority women, especially when we're not in the room. 
And I think those are individual things that we can most certainly do in addition to calling our local officials and using our voice politically, filling out our census and encouraging people to do that because we know that a lot of this is gonna come from money. And so I do think that as individuals, we can use our voice in a political way to make sure that changes are, are occurring on a legislative level. Yeah, thank you. Um, those are, thank you for your comments. The, yeah, I, I didn't tell you to, it's, I didn't tell either of you at the beginning that you, while you guys can only see each other, the YouTube audience can see all three of us. Uh, so though I appreciate that. That's great. Um, but yeah, and then to, to your point, Dr. Bennett, right, there are other things we do, and if you're in medicine that allow patients to get better care, uh, care coordination is one of those big pieces uh, that are that is really, really super important. Um, Dr. Dada. I think this is a really exciting time for medicine. I think there's a great opportunity here. Um, I think we are past the point of needing to accrue evidence, whether there are disparities that go beyond access and socioeconomics, and it's time to acknowledge that we all have to play a role, that we are all playing a role up to now, and now we have to play a positive role in how to affect that. And I think that starts at the individual level. And I think this is you know, time to take the opportunity to have those very difficult discussions and really acknowledge that we need a, a systemic change and how we can be part of it. Um, and again, like I said before, this, the stakes in, in this particular arena are people's lives and there's no better motivation. And I, I think this is a this is a really important time for medicine and history in general. I like that you pointed out that we don't need more data. We don't need another study. We don't need another committee. Uh, we need uh, like the, an action council. You know, we need people who are going to say, okay, this is what needs to be done. This is how we're going to do it. And uh, then we can follow up the, then we can follow and see how those programs work. Um, so I, I thank the two, thank you Shoma for offering this up as a topic. Thank you very much, Dr. Bennett, for all of your expertise. It is, it is an absolute pleasure to see um, someone that I've known since their intern year um, achieve so much and, and get to the level that you've, got, that you've come to and have such a great, an incredible level of knowledge. Uh, that, that warms my heart and I know that everyone at NYU is proud of you. Um, the, uh, the, this has been Women's Health Weekly. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we will have this as a podcast. Please listen to our podcast on Spotify and iTunes and anywhere else you might listen to podcasts. We're all over the place. Uh, you can follow up if you've missed our uh, telecast today. Certainly you can uh, see it on, on YouTube uh, as it will be up. And we do break it up into clips later on so that you can uh, see specific topics in smaller clips. Thank you very much. Uh, we will do this again, and we will invite Dr. Bennett back and Dr. Dada back. I hope everyone has a very pleasant weekend. Stay safe and be well. Thank you very much.